The sermon passage this morning, as we continue through 1 Samuel, is 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 12 through 21. Hear the word of God. Now the sons of Eli were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged flesh hook in his hand when the, while the meat was boiling. Then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. And the priest would take for himself all that the flesh hook brought up. So they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who sacrificed, Give me, Get meat for roasting to the priest, for he will not take boiled meat from you, but raw. And if the man said to him, They should really burn the fat first. Then you may take as much as your heart desires. He would then answer him, No, but you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Therefore the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. But Samuel ministered before the Lord, even as a child, wearing a linen ephod. Moreover, his mother used to make him a little robe and bring it to him year by year when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. And Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife, and say, The Lord give you descendants from this woman for the loan that was given to the Lord. Then they would go to their own home. And the Lord visited Hannah, so that she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the child Samuel grew before the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, May the words of my mouth and meditations of our hearts this morning be holy and acceptable in your sight. Grant us an understanding of your word by your spirit that would cause us to change our lives into the image of your son, Jesus Christ, that we may follow in the way of faithful, regular, normal obedience unto our Father in heaven. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. Now the Christian life is as much a life of preparation as it is a life of goodness and joy. Now those two things aren't necessarily opposed to one another. The 5th century Bishop Leo the Great, if you've heard of him, shares this same observation. He says, quote, Amidst the trials of this life, we must ask for the power of endurance rather than the glory, because the joyousness of reigning cannot precede the times of suffering. End quote. Now, this is not to say that we cannot have joy or that we have to hate life in order to love life. That's not what Mr. Leo is saying. But it is only to say that joy is something received through endurance. Endurance is the great virtue that leads to glory and joy. And endurance, as many of our parents here know, is what we teach our children. Children are taught to continue plodding along in their righteous deeds. They're called to do all things, all things according to God's word, no matter if anyone else around them does them or not. They are to work hard. They are to obey the law. They are to love their brother or sister. They are to discipline their bodies. We teach all of these things to our children. We, we teach them to endure even temptation. And this is exactly what our Lord does with His children. In fact, it's the reason why the first five books of the Bible are filled with stories and examples for us to follow. Examples of men and women who followed the word of the Lord. 
It's the reason why those same five books contain God's explicit law. Do this. Don't do that. Stand here. Right? Burn this. It's a childlike set of books. The foundation of growth is learning what to grow into and to practice it. Practicing what you will later become. And this sort of this sort of devotion demands much from us, but in this kind of devotion, it is the kind of devotion that is needed for a pure and spotless church that waits patiently for the coming of her Lord and husband. The church in Samuel's time is in a spiritual desert. It is a desert of lies, extortion, and all manner of unrighteousness. In Samuel's time, he is, he is walking, he is living, he is being a Christian in a spiritual wilderness with the sons of Eli lying in wait for the children of Israel at every turn, like wolves lying in wait for the sheep to devour them. This is a sharp contrast. Samuel is Eli's adopted son, but he puts his true sons to shame. And Anna's little robe is also important. You think of the cute little image here of a little linen robe that is given to Samuel year by year, clean and bright. And this is, adds more contrast, more, more oomph to what the writer of Samuel is trying to convey. More dynamic, that Samuel stands faithful and blameless in the sight of his new brothers. And as a result of Samuel's childlike faith and obedience to the Lord, the children of Israel have a glimmer of hope. They have a glory that awaits them despite the situation that they are in, despite the hopelessness that they may feel. Samuel's patience gives Israel patience. And the same should be said of us as Christians in this particular culture, in this particular time. Our patient faith and obedience to our great God and Savior should spark the other faithful in the church to endure, looking unto Christ and the joy He offers beyond the circumstances that they are experiencing. And this is the hope that we find here in this passage with little Samuel. Now, after Hannah's fervent prayer, this is where, this is where we are. She had a fervent prayer amid the assembly, amid Eli's sons and unfaithful sons. The author gives us a glimpse into the state of the church at this particular time. The house that Samuel is brought into does not reflect what the tabernacle should be. Eli has abdicated his duties as a high priest in his later years. And by the time 1 Samuel 4 rolls around, just a couple chapters later, Eli was 98 years old. And Eli's sons, who, by the way, had to meet a requirement as priests of 30 years old, they had to be 30 years old in order to serve as priests in the tabernacle, were probably well into their 30s, maybe even into their 40s, by the time of 1 Samuel chapter 2. And this means that Eli was probably near blind and advanced in years by the time of Samuel's ministry here. He's blind in 1 Samuel 4, and he's probably near or close to blind here. So in his advanced age, you could understand Eli seems to have given up some of his parental duties, and more importantly, I guess, some of his high priestly duties of guarding the tabernacle from corruption, and his sons took advantage of Eli's reputation, his name, to fleece the sheep of Israel. The author describes Eli's sons as corrupt. The literal translation there is sons of Belial, 
sons of Belial, which means sons of worthlessness. Not just corrupt, but worthless. They were priests in the house of God, which would make them sons of Aaron. If any of you were confused a couple of weeks ago about the, uh, who could be a priest, who could not be a priest, well, anyone who was a priest belonged to the house of Aaron, which, was, which also belonged to the house of Eli. Right? So there was, it was a subset between the Levites, or within the Levites. Aaron's house were the priests of the tabernacle. They were chosen particularly for that service. The other Levites were not allowed to be priests proper. Right? They could be priestly in their functions, but they couldn't be proper priests. They were guardians of the tabernacle or temple. They were helpers to the priests, servants and housekeepers in God's house. They were cleaning, they were tending to the fires and the bread, they were doing all the, the work, they were, they were uh, bodyguards and bouncers for the, tabern- for the tabernacle. They were the deacons of the Old Testament. Right? These were the Levites as, as a group. So the Levites, including Aaron's sons, also received their food, their wages, and their housing from other tribes in Israel. They weren't allowed to have a part in the inheritance of Israel and the other, that the other tribes had. They didn't have land. They weren't allowed to have land. They lived among the other tribes so that they could minister to those tribes. They had no inheritance. They had to live in the land of, of other people. They had to be fed by them. They had to be financially supported by them. God even prescribed the amount by which they were to be paid. They were allowed a tenth of sacrifices and yields. And from that tenth, they themselves were required to offer a tenth unto the Lord. And they were not allowed to steal what belonged to God and to Him alone. They had strict rules about sacrifice. So Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli here, chose to demand more from Israel than what God has already prescribed them. This is the problem here in 1 Samuel 2. In fact, they enforced their own rule in Shiloh. Remember, they have a monopoly on God's presence here. They've got the tabernacle that they attend to, and everyone who wants to sacrifice has to go through them. So they enforced their own rule, which bordered on extortion. It was extortion. They would stick a three-pronged pronged hook or, or fork into a pot of whatever sacrifice came to them, and whatever they got from that fork, they would keep for themselves. They wouldn't even wait until it was cooked. Right? They would, they, they'd want it right away. Even more, they would demand the fat and the raw meat of sacrifices before they were offered to God. And this was a direct violation of God's law. The fat of a cut, as my wife says, is the best part. Right? And the Lord demands the best of a sacrifice. The Lord told Moses in Leviticus chapter 7, You shall not eat any fat of ox or sheep or goat. He told them explicitly, That goes to me. You do not give that to anyone else. You do not eat that yourself. So these worthless sons of Eli took the fat, the raw meat, and much of the sacrificial food over and beyond what they were what they were owed. And they took it for themselves, and they took it by force. And when we think of priests demanding food from another person, we don't usually think of this as being intimidating. Right? Priests were built differently back then. They looked a little bit different in the Old Testament world. Remember, Levites, they carried spears, they guarded the tabernacle, they fought in battles. 
These guys weren't the fat, jolly priests that we think of of 18th century England, right? This is, that would not be an intimidating guy to come to you and demand some extra food. But these guys were different. If someone in priestly garb stopped you with your sacrifice, surrounded by armed Levites, and demanded extra, what would you say? Right? You've got, armed, you've got an armed guard coming to you, and the, the, priest, the priest's servant comes to you and says, I need, I need that. And you say, well, maybe you should save that for God, because that's kind of what the law says. And they say, okay, well, uh, maybe you should uh, drop those things and leave, right? As a result of this sort of extortion and theft and arrogance in God's assembly, people were discouraged from sacrificing. It says in verse 17, Therefore the sign of the young men was very the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord. For men abhorred the offering of the Lord. The men there is not the young men, it's not Eli's sons. The men there who abhorred the offering of the Lord were the children of Israel. They hated giving sacrifice. Can you blame them? Can you blame them for hating the sacrifices of the Lord? And this is what makes Elkanah and Hannah's devotion exemplary. This is what makes them shine, stick out from the rest of Israel. It was difficult to worship in the tabernacle. It was difficult because you knew you were going there to be extorted and taken advantage of. So you would leave with, with barely anything, even if you offered a peace offering to the Lord. And this church culture that they were creating in Shiloh also highlighted Samuel's ministry for the better. There's this cute little image of Hannah year after year making little robes, knitting little linen robes for little Samuel to wear as he served in the tabernacle. And while this is an endearing image, and while that was probably true early on, he was three when he got there, it was probably true early on in his ministry, Samuel was, was most definitely much older than we think in this particular passage. The same word for young men that's used for Eli's sons, who were, again, probably in their 30s or 40s at the time, is the same word used for child in describing Samuel. So this word literally means lad, underling, or under authority. Hophni and Phinehas were most certainly over 30 years old, but they were under Eli. Samuel would have been a bit younger, but probably not uh, the little four or five-year-old you see on your cover here this morning. He would have been a little bit older, doing more work at the tabernacle. And Elkanah and Hannah continued to worship year after year without fail. Hannah, on her visits, would give a present to Samuel, a fresh linen robe for his work in the house of God. And then Elkanah and Hannah show particular attention to Samuel, and they aid him in his ministry. They, they give him blessings and favor. This offering Samuel a new robe should not go unnoticed for us. It's not a passing comment. Hannah's annual robe shows something about Samuel, and they show something about each one of us as priests in God's house and God's providence over his church. Linen robes were unique. Not everyone had linen. Linen robes were the robes of the high priest. Samuel's righteousness and faith exceeded that of Eli and his sons. And the robe contrasts that. But linen, linen robes were also the robes of the saints in Revelation. Revelation chapter 19 shows us that the bride of Christ is arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. 
brand new robes. And this fine linen, these fine linen robes, is the righteous works of the saints. Samuel is, picture, is a picture of the church here. He's a picture of the church, clothed in the works of the saints, holy and acceptable before God. Now remember, the name of Hannah means favored one. And she is bestowing favor, the same favor that she has received from God, she is bestowing on Samuel for his ministry. He is clothed in righteousness. And that's, that standing is reaffirmed. It is blessed by God year after year with the giving of a new robe he receives with each new sacrifice. It is a picture of God's affirmation of Samuel's ministry. It is a picture of the constant renewal of his covenant before God as a Nazarite and a Levite in his house. And each one of us has been robed in the righteousness of Christ if we confess his name. But in a more true and better way. As Samuel was robed in linen after his consecration, as a Nazarite, the Christian, in a true and better way, is robed in the righteousness of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. For as many as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Galatians 3.27 Baptism is the, the, the sign and pledge by God that He has, he has clothed us with His Son and entered us into His ministry. And each Lord's Day, as Elkanah and Hannah show us, we renew the covenant God has made with us through His Son. And we, like Samuel, grow more and more before the Lord. The Lord ministers to us through His appointed means, and He grows us into the image of His Son by faith. And this gets us to verse 21 in the growth of Samuel. Verse 21, if you want to think of it this way, is a hyperlink. We've seen this before. We've seen the growth of, of faith of one particular young man before. And we've seen that in Luke chapter 1. Starting in verse 80. Speaking of John the baptizer. It says, So the child grew and became strong in spirit and was in the desert till the day of his manifestation to Israel. We see later in Luke chapter 1 that another, or Luke chapter 2, that another small child grew in stature in favor among men. And that was our Lord Jesus Christ. Samuel, as we see in a couple weeks to come, is not merely a glimmer of Christ to come, but more specifically, a picture of St. John, the, the forerunner, who prepares the way of the king. There is a king to come in Samuel. And Samuel prepares that way. St. John is wild and bold and childlike in character. Just as Samuel is presented in these first few chapters as childlike, strong in the faith, bold amidst those who would do wrong and extort the children of Israel, devoutly dedicated to the mission that he has been charged with in a stark contrast to the elites of his day. Samuel is a voice crying out in the spiritual wilderness of Shiloh, prepare the way for a coming king, David, who will restore Israel, build God's house, and establish faithful worship once again. So in this way, Samuel is a faithful son in Eli's house. And God uses him to establish his new son on the throne in Jerusalem. David, who brings with him the restoration of Israel and her worship. So this little child, offered by a previously barren woman in Ephraim, 
becomes the catalyst for the deliverer of Israel from the grip of the Philistines. This is the power of simple, obedient faith. Samuel is presented as a child in this passage for this reason. He doesn't do anything spectacular. He doesn't do anything extraordinary. He simply goes where he is told, does his job, honors his father and mother, doesn't seek to stand in the way of sinners like Hophni and Phinehas. And that simple, childlike faith produces perseverance. It produces endurance. And that perseverance turns into the very hope of Israel. So children, there is much to learn from Samuel's example. You can learn a lot from little Samuel. He was grateful for his father and mother's devotion to the Lord. And even the job that his, father, or that his mother put him into. He didn't, have, he didn't choose it. He didn't necessarily want it. But he took it in stride. He didn't whine and gripe about having to do something that he didn't choose. Instead, he found it to be an opportunity to do something unto the Lord. To grow in faith and maturity in the Lord. And there are many rules kids in your house that you do not like, maybe you don't understand, but all of those are tools God uses to teach you perseverance and endurance, so that when things get tough one day and you're out on your own, you're able to get through those hard times by faith, knowing that our Lord gives you hardship so that you might taste glory and joy on the other side. It is for your good and the good of those around you. And that kind of faithful patience grows in the deserted world around us. The culture that we used to to benefit from, the culture that Christians made in our country, for example, the culture that we used to live and breathe and swim in, that culture is almost dried up. There are countless sons of worthlessness who use their name or the name of their fathers before them to do the equivalent of Eli's sons today. There is nothing new here. Many pastors use the worship of God's people to pad their pockets. Think of the health and wealth movements that seem to be dwindling now. Some use their authority, as we'll see next week, to exploit the most vulnerable of the church, whether financial or emotional or even sexual abuse, which we'll see next week. Our Lord Jesus saw this same thing in the first century. How the treasury of the temple abused the poor and the widowed. How the Pharisees and scribes demanded conformity to their laws and rules while ignoring and living contrary to the heart of God's law. The church will always have her sons of worthlessness. And as we've seen recently with the slow decline of things like the health and wealth movements, pastors telling you that if you just give enough money, then you'll get health and prosperity and riches. Those sons of Belial discourage the broader church, and can often lead Christians away from church attendance. And many of you have seen that happen in various movements within the church. I know many, I'm sure you know some as well, who have attended, have attended churches for years. And because of bad leaders who abuse their authority, they leave. Like the children of Israel in Samuel's day, men abhorred the offering of the Lord. But the response to wickedness within the church, whatever that wickedness looks like, whatever it may look like in our particular context, the response to the perversion of worship and practice in the church is not to abandon the ordinances of God, but in fact to lean on them more and more. To lean on them 
more and more. Our response to evil in the broader church, and even in the cultural and political realms, is not to give up, but to press on. As C.S. Lewis said, further up and further in. It is to meet with God faithfully, petition Him for help, and to trust His Word despite the state of the institutions around us. There is nothing, again, there is nothing spectacular or extraordinary about Samuel that is mentioned here. He doesn't possess some special knowledge or some special skill that no one else has. He doesn't possess some special ability. He's simply going where, he, where, where God is, doing what his God says, and believing the Lord despite the unbelief around him. And this is where growth and maturity happen for the Christian. If you have been baptized, God has stamped you with his name. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He has clothed you with His Son. He has poured out His Spirit upon you. He has made you a priest in His house to serve Him and others by faith. The priesthood of believers is a childlike ministry of patience and endurance. Listening to your Father's words. Following your elder brother's example. And patiently doing the works of love you've been called to do. So like Samuel... Like John the baptizer, we are to patiently wait for the coming of our Lord. And this is not a passive waiting. This is not an indifferent waiting. This is not twiddling your thumbs and hoping that our Lord comes quickly. It is an active expectation that endures until that hope is realized. So do not be like the many of Samuel's day that abhorred the offering of the Lord because the church might be a mess. Instead... Patiently plod, doing the work of God that He has called you to do, worshiping faithfully, praying regularly, being with believers and those of like mind, believing God's Word and teaching it to your children, consistently disciplining your own life and your own body with that Word. That kind of faithful living grows you and it grows others around you. And like Hannah, We can offer one another, as often as we meet, the gift of our patient, righteous deeds, so that others might be clothed in fine linen, clean and bright, preparing and being prepared, and longing for the coming of our Lord. Our families should be families like Elkanah, Hannah, and Samuel. All of our deeds toward each other should be for an offering to the Lord. We should not grow tired of worship. We should not grow tired of God's word or prayer. And when we do grow tired, because we will, when we do grow weary, we must have the faith and patience of Samuel to do the slogging, to do the hard work of normal, everyday righteousness, to continue with your head lifted high to heaven. And the church should reflect this life as well, putting both false son and unbeliever to shame with goodness, patience, and faith. Don't despise the small works of God, especially in our culture as those works are growing and growing. Our God uses the weak to shame the strong. May you grow and become strong in spirit, patiently striving in the faith until the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.